0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the My Vintage Lifestyle podcast. Today, I am joined by Caleb Higgins, who is the extremely hardworking person behind the highly successful YouTube channel, The Second Empire Strikes Back, a channel documenting the restoration of a gorgeous 19th century home in St. Louis, Missouri. Caleb, it's wonderful to have you here. Big fan of the channel. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Of course, man. Uh, I think it's... uh... Well, it's a good opportunity to talk about something I'm really passionate about. So uh, I'll talk to anybody about it, man. I love it. You know, it just kind of oozes out of me, let's say.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. And I'm I'm so glad you're so passionate about what you're doing and you're such a good advocate for, for history. Uh, you're the first person we're going to be talking to about restoring an old house. And um, I think you're probably one of the best people to talk to about it. You've got some amazing hands-on experience. So looking forward to it.
1: Well, I've, I've definitely got a lot to learn too, but, um, you know, I think that's what, when you take on a project like this, if you're not expecting to learn every day from it, uh, I think that chance of success becomes quite a bit lower.
0: <laughs> that's probably true too. Absolutely. Why don't we start with uh, the name of your channel? I think I know the reason for the name, but I'm sure a few listeners and maybe a few of your uh, your subscribers too would be interested in hearing the origin of the name
1: um so second empire strikes back uh you know i'm a little bit of a star wars fan i wouldn't say i'm i'm any kind of a nut i like the films right but uh this is a second empire style architecture it has the mansard roof uh the dormers uh mansard roof being a very high-pitched uh roof um you know very high slopes and it usually has rounded windows things like that i don't quite have that mine's second empire italian eight however i think thought the pun was so good that i I think i'd be a fool not to use it and it really does kind of encompass what i'm doing here this is my second empire building and i'm making sure it strikes back it needs that that second wind it needs love and care and to be repaired and so it's it really encompasses what i'm doing here we're striking
0: back yeah totally and and plus it's a it is actually a catchy name and it's something that i feel like once you've heard it you're not going to forget about it which is awesome
1: so this is the Charles S. Brown house. It might be, you know, Charles S. Brown, like, okay, maybe you can remember by saying Charlie Brown, but it's not as, as or poppy. And I, I, I thought the opportunity was a good opportunity. Nobody else had the name. Um, it just works, I think.
0: Yeah, totally. Let's, let's take it all the way back. You're obviously big into history. You really know a lot, um, about history. What kind of got you started on your love of the past?
1: Uh, to be honest, probably when I was like eight or nine years old, uh, my aunt, uh, who was in high school at the time, was doing a project on the Titanic. And so she brought home uh, or bought one of those National Geographic VHSs of Robert Ballard finding the Titanic at 87. And I wore that tape out. I was so fascinated by it, like this grand staircases and all of the beautiful elements and in, in, in what it was. And then the tragedy of it, like it was so compelling. Um, that and I was a really big into model trains as a kid so I think the combination of those two led me to art led me to history led me to love all of these things even though I grew up quite far outside of the city and I grew up in like a trailer park so i I would come up here in the city and you see these castles essentially I'm like I never understood why they were falling down I never understood any of these things and my family wasn't really into a lot of this stuff but they had a few old things here and there and I always I don't know, for whatever reason, gravitated towards those items. I guess it was, oh, you know, maybe my grandmother touched this that I never met, or, you know, it was something like that. It was just a connection to the past, the fact that you were able to feel that, I don't know, that connection to it, to the people who lived their lives in these things. I've just always had a connection to that.
0: You talk about that connection. It's actually something we talk about a lot on this podcast is, is how some of the items and some of the history just really connects us to our ancestors, connects us to our maybe our family members or even people that we're not related to, or we've never met, but it's sort of it offers this gateway into the past, which is really neat. And I think it's really cool that the Titanic was sort of a catalyst for you. I mean, it's one of the most fascinating stories in the world, I think.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it touched so many people in so many different ways around the world. And um, I think there's, you know, the, the idea of like human fallibility and, and arrogance uh, like juxtaposed against like this grandeur and this newness and this industrial might, and then the loss of it all. Like it's it's really uh, I don't know. It's a it's a super compelling story. Obviously, we keep coming back to it. I mean, you go through the eras of movies made for it and all this different stuff, and I don't know, just all the books and the art and I, I, I don't know. I was uh, I mean, was really into it as a kid. I'm still quite into it. Uh, one of my subscribers just sent me a book that was published in 1912 about the Titanic and other sea disasters. And having that, I'm like, like I get giddy about all the antiques, but that one really kind of got me. I'm like, oh, this is so cool.
0: That is so cool. Yeah. Like, I mean, I love primary source. I'm, you know, I went to school for history and uh, that's always been my favorite thing. I remember like learning things in textbooks and the professor tells you things and you're reading lots of different books, but always my favorite was primary source texts that came from the era when, when something happened. I mean, you just, you don't get closer to the, to the zone than that. So, so. You're not totally new to restoration. I believe I heard you say in one of your videos that you had done a storefront before um, taking on the house. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Uh, yeah. So um, actually, I, um, I, I lived in LA. Like I'm from the St. Louis region, um, but I lived in LA for about nine years. And so I was just kind of over Los Angeles in that life. Uh, so for about two years, I saved up everything, uh, moved back in with my mom for a year and then bought a place in the south side of the city, uh, in an area called Dutchtown. Uh, and I spent three years fixing that place up. Um, it's a mixed-use building. There's obviously apartments up top and then a, a storefront. It's, it combined, that, that place is still smaller than this house. Um, but it was a good way to kind of cut my teeth. Um, the storefront itself is beautiful. It has the original tin ceiling. Um, it, it, well, all the windows were all covered up in the front, but I took everything off and redid the storefront and cleaned everything up. Uh, but the upstairs area, I, it was all the, you know, historical elements are gone. So it was more of just replace things, make it pretty enough. Um, but that, that's actually the structure that helped me buy this because uh, a lot of people don't know, they, they see all these wonderful old houses, but if it's not airtight, watertight, and has a kitchen and at least one functional bathroom, you're not going to get a loan on it. And uh, this place was far from having any of that. Um, so I was able to refinance that place to buy this one. Hmm. Um, yeah, I did definitely cut my teeth with that. Also my uh, stepfather growing up was a carpenter. I learned a lot from him. I come from a very blue collar family. Um, so you pick things up. If, if I can't do it, you know, uncle so-and-so knows how to do it and I can give him a call and he can walk me through the process. So plus now we live in the day and age where YouTube is such a thing. If, if you want to learn anything, the, the internet will provide you all of it. Um, and now with the YouTube channel, if I mess something up, uh, people will let me know and they're not mean about it, but I can figure it out then and fix it and do it the correct way. So, um, I don't know. It's, you just figure things out, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. Actually. That's, uh, one of the questions I actually wanted to ask you is you, you are kind of having to figure some things out as you go, especially when it comes to the really historical stuff that maybe you don't have experience with. Um, but I imagine of course, because you want to keep stuff as original as possible, you you feel maybe a little bit of that pressure, like you can't really afford to make mistakes. So what are some of the things you try and do to ensure that you get that cut or that stain, uh, right on like the first try?
1: Um, well, I, I tend to play around with a lot of other pieces of wood that I've lying around that I know aren't going anywhere, but are contemporary to this time period. So I'll play with things on wood that looks similar, um, to see how things work. Um, but a lot of it's trial and error. Um, like look with the woodwork for like stains and stuff, because I'm not actually staining the wood. I'm using shellac. Well, shellac, I know you just take some denatured alcohol and rub it on. It, it comes right back off. So I can mess up as many times as I want. It's just going to cost me supplies, not the piece I'm working on. Whereas if you actually stain and it soaks into the wood as opposed to sitting on top of the wood, uh, well, you can permanently change the color of that wood or at least the top few layers. And then you got to sand off and, or talk something very detailed. Well, you're not going to be able to get that off. But yeah, I mean, I've definitely made mistakes. I think if you don't make mistakes, uh, you're superhuman or something. Like I don't, I don't know. Like I, I think I'm like a lot of people. I learn by failing. Um, I think we all do. And the rest of it is just straight up improvising. Like I know how this is supposed to work, and then finding parts to make things work. Uh, I think a good example of that is the this kitchen or not the kitchen, the, the bathroom sink. The fitters for uh, plumbing these days, the half-inch ones don't fit those old taps. or are 130 years old or maybe more. Um, but the gas ones do, um, but they're not made to hold water. So I had to throw a bunch of O-rings in there. Uh, and I'm happy to report that the thing I did, the improvised section of it, held water better than the manufactured stuff for it. So That's everything awesome. else had to be tightened up. My stuff worked, though. So
0: That's amazing. Yeah. That's cool. No, I think that's good advice too for people is, is, you know, not, not to be afraid to do a bit of trial and error and you just, you kind of figure things out as you go for sure. Yeah. So why did you decide and when did you decide to take on the Charles S. Brown house? Was there sort of a moment for you, like a pull the trigger moment when you were like, yep, I have to be the one to take that on?
1: Um, I think, well, when I, when I first, well, cause I was looking for a place up here already. Um, I found a house down the street that's actually probably three times the size of this. Uh, that's actually one of the more... Uh, it's the Sheehan Mansion. Two brothers live there. It's three years newer than this house, but they had had the land for longer and it replaced an older house. Um, and they actually sold my guy the land. So like they, they were like the big landos over here. Amazing house, but all the history had been wiped out of it. Like uh, All the stairwell was messed up. There wasn't a mantle left in the place. The only thing that was left was the pocket doors, uh, which were still amazing, but I wanted something a bit more intact. Uh, it's a lot to salvage it that in the roof would have cost a quarter of a million dollars to replace. Hmm. <laughs> I didn't have that kind of money. Um, so I, I, but I really love this area. I had met some of the neighbors already. It's all I wanted to be here. So I found this place. And um, I think when me and my girlfriend came in for the first time and I saw that nobody had ripped out the original bank of shutters in the front and that all of the plaster work in these front two rooms was here. I was sold immediately because I knew this area was going to come up eventually. And I didn't want somebody to, uh, what I'm gonna term, because I don't have a term for it, like white box. And basically they would preserve maybe a lot of the Victorian stuff, but they'd present it like it was in an art gallery. And I wanted this place because it, it's such a survivor. I, I wanted to display it in a way that would have the right context. It would, it would look correct. You know, I want it to be where the Browns could come in tomorrow and recognize it as their house, not not something I did. So I even try to take myself out of this as far as I possibly can. If I find, like, in the bathroom the original pattern, well, okay, that's what it has to be now. So, I, you know, I'm just trying my best to, to do something not only for myself but for the city. Um, you know, and I, I just... I, I couldn't fathom somebody coming in here and just destroying this place or, or white boxing it. There's enough modern Victorians. I, I want to see a real Victorian and not one that's, that's a museum, but actually a house. There's something that people can come in and, and be part of and experience this for a day. Because how many yeah. people get the opportunity to sleep in a 140-year-old bed or use 140-year-old taps or, or actually experience that stuff? Everything's always roped off. And I, I want to make something that people can come in and play. You know, these, these items, uh, you know, a lot of them you'll never see, or you'll never touch. And I want to make it so more people can come see and touch them.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. And I think that's probably one of the things that I appreciated most about your project. You know, one of the things about my blog and our, our podcast is, is all about living history, like how you incorporate the past into your everyday life. And I think that's one of the most remarkable things about your home is it's not a museum, but it's. It's original, it's it's living, breathing, and it's current um, in a way that's not, you know, white box, let's say, but it's, it's a functional home that people can come and experience. And I think that's one of the coolest things about your project. And I guess that, you know, that's kind of why you wanted to try and keep everything as original as possible. But you're right, a lot of those places, a lot of, you know, old Victorian homes or turn of the century homes, a lot of them were gutted over the years and they don't have the stuff in them anymore.
1: Uh, well, even the ones that aren't gutted, like I say, they they end up with a, a lot of you know modern touches. Like I, I've seen quite a few, and you, like you'll tell, like oh, it was a walnut handrail, and like now it's white. Well, you can get that paint off there; it's not fun. But yeah, I mean, a lot of them just, and I don't, I don't have necessarily have a problem with that, of course, as well. Like each to their own. Um, but you know, I think examples this intact are rare. And I want to make sure that I can keep it as intact as humanly possible. Um, again, like I, I think about things, I think a lot differently than other people. I don't see this so much as my house. I'm just the caretaker here, right? But more than all of that, I have ever said this a few times, like this isn't, oh, Caleb getting his dream house. This is Caleb writing his love letter to the city of St. Louis. Like this is me showing how much I appreciate the architecture of our city. And and really something that we have that's a real gift here um, that a lot of people overlook, most people overlook. Um, You know, St. Louis isn't a city talked about much for architecture, unless you're talking about like uh, Aero uh, Saarinen, right? Yeah, the the guy that created the arch or like the tulip chairs.
0: (laughs) That was one of my questions as well is, uh, I guess, you know, you're obviously from St. Louis, but I think a lot of people who are maybe dreaming of an old house and would love to restore one or maybe buy one, they think you know, perhaps I'll just look wherever I can find one, but you intentionally made the move to come home and to gift this house essentially to your city. And I think that's a really cool decision. And like, how did you come to to make that decision rather than just say, I I could go find an old house somewhere else or.
1: Well, I want to say in St. Louis. um, Well, I mean, there's a lot of places here in Missouri where I could go. Um, I also have a pretty big love of ice hockey and um, Missouri isn't known for having a lot of ice hockey rings where St. Louis actually does. St. Louis has tons of them. So I can go play leagues here. <laughs> so I didn't want to move so far out where I couldn't enjoy my hobby as well. So St. Louis made sense. Plus I've I've always had a love for this city and I you know, I even in like when I lived in LA and stuff, it's like, oh, you so you come from a flyover state. I've always hated that. Like I, I mean, cuz I've been to a lot of these cities too. Like I love Memphis. I love Cincinnati. I love Cleveland. I love Detroit. Like there's so much potential in these cities and people would rather go jam themselves into the West and East coast and live this kind of half, half life where I don't, I don't know, like, I feel like you can get so much more, well, there's so much more bang for your buck here in the Midwest for sure. But there's also, I, I think you could build a, a more in, like, I don't know, intact community. Like I know my neighbors here. You know, one of my neighbors brings me food. Like, I, I talk to people here. I never talk to my neighbors in LA. You would never know those people. You're always working so much with this. And I mm-hmm. think with this working remotely thing that's, that's happening since, since the pandemic, um, I, I think there's a huge opportunity that, that some people are taking advantage of and some people are not. And, and I just wanna see St. Louis thrive. It's always in the media for, for the wrong reasons, in my opinion. Um, the people here are lovely, first and foremost. Architecture, second. And it's just raw potential. Like if you were to start a business as a young person in, in say, Seattle uh, or San Francisco or L.A. or New York or Boston, the cost of entry is so high. The bar is so high for you to do anything. Whereas, and in, in if you fail, I mean, you might be owing, you know, money for the rest of your life. You're never going to get out from under it your kids might be handling it for you, you know, whereas here you can actually fail and risk the failure. So you could take a, a wild idea and try it and just see if it works. Cause, cause the rent isn't that high. The, the cost to get things done, isn't that high. So it's, I don't know, it's a place where you could come and actually take a risk on something, a chance.
0: And well, that's good advice uh, for young people listening as well. I think uh, revitalizing our our communities, a lot of the communities where a lot of us come from, even, you know, a lot of us will move to those big cities for opportunities when we're younger for school. And, and, uh, you're right with the, with the world of remote work and the creator economy, things are, are definitely changing. And that's cool. That's, that's really cool that you wanted to take your money and and park it back in your hometown. It's pretty cool. Did, did anyone think you were, were crazy for taking on the house and did anybody encourage you to do it?
1: Um, I mean, my family... I mean, they're, they're kind of, they're all like rednecks or whatever. Right. Like, but they're super loving people, super nice. Um, I don't think anybody really ever said, Hey, that's a bad idea or, or don't do it. I, I think it's just because I've done so many things that I, I say, Hey, I'm going to go do this and I go in and actually do it. So I think people listen when I say, Hey, I'm going to do something. They believe me. Um, my family's also been extremely supportive um, of everything that I've tried to do. Um, I mean, I, I, I left for L.A. when I was 18, the day after I graduated high school. And I went and I made a little career for myself out there. Like, um, you know, if I'm going to do something, I guess I'm going to do it. <laughs> it might take me longer than I think I, you know, than I say. Um, but I will eventually get there. And so, yeah, I mean, there are people online, um, you know, you get the the comments occasionally like, um, oh, watch the movie. uh, Oh, what's that one with uh, Tom Hanks in it? Uh, Money Pit. Yeah, go watch Money Pit and then tell me if you want to do that house still. I'm like, I don't need to watch the movie. I'm telling you, I'm going to do the house. Don't worry about it. Um, But no, I mean, even then, the most part, everybody's really encouraging. I think people want to see this happen. I think a lot of people live vicariously through me. Um, And that's really cool that other people can get um enjoyment out of my passion which I think is amazing so
0: mm-hmm. and you said a lot of people want to see this happen and i and i think you're absolutely right were you expecting sort of this groundswell of interest when you took to youtube to try and share the story of the house
1: um definitely not to the extent that it happens um i thought there might be some interest and um you know when i when i labeled the video i i used the correct terms or whatever like i I kind of looked into, you know, algorithm stuff like, okay, what's words that are, that would might work right now. Um, so I gave myself, I guess, the best shot, but I figured, oh, you know, I'll get a thousand views or something. It'll be kind of cool for my buddies overseas and my, my parents and, you know, my friends out in LA to, to see what I'm doing, see what I'm doing with my life. Um, I never expect it to be what it is today. I didn't expect it to become my full-time job, certainly. But I think it's really, really awesome that it has, because I think it's, I don't know, for whatever reason, what I'm doing here has, uh, has touched a lot of people. Like I have a lot of people who, uh, you know, give me comments like, um, uh, you know, I've had this, this transplant or I've had this going on in my life. I was sick. I wasn't doing well and this, and I've been getting better. And I feel as I've been getting better, the house has been getting better and it's actually helping me heal. And it's like, what do you even do with that information? Like that's such Deep thing that you know. I didn't think that would be what I'm doing here. Like I, I I'm trying to heal the house, but if I end up healing humans in the process, I, I'm I can't be more stoked about that. You know, like it's it's amazing.
0: That's a cool story. I think um, you know a, a lot of people that this house and this story is touching, uh, striking a chord with a lot of people as well who are who are just interested in the past and perhaps maybe would have been afraid to pursue their passion for the past, or maybe, you know, maybe afraid to take a leap and buy an historic property like you have. And I think there's probably a big inspiration there as well for people. And I just think people can appreciate what you're doing in a way that maybe inspires them to, to do something similar.
1: Well, I mean, you, you know, if you can't, like if you're a, you know, a young, really young person and Say you can't afford a house like this. Well, there's no you know, harm in going to an, an estate sale or an antique shop and finding an old chair you like. Fix that. You can connect with the past on a much smaller scale than uh, what I or other people do with these, these houses. Um, and you can start there and you can have a lot of fun with it. You know? it and then you know, with the idea being that you will teach yourself the skills with these, these smaller pieces that you can one day like, take into a project like this. Um, I would say if you have absolutely no experience in any of this stuff whatsoever, I think it's very difficult to get in here, uh, to do these things because the, the, you know, the learning curve is very steep. Um, especially for things like plaster and plumbing and electrical, um, you have to have some experience with these things. Um, so, you know, cut your teeth on small things, rewire lamps, uh, take Brasso and clean old things up, uh, learn upholstery. Um, These are all skills that will translate. Um, I mean, even me, like I I started as an artist, a painter. So the amount of skills that I've learned from that, that I've been able to transition into this house, um, you know, it's it's so necessary. (laughs) So if you're young right now and you're really into these things, I heavily suggest start small. You know, you can go and maybe afford a, a $10 chair at an estate sale that's all beat up. Learn how to use wood glue. And then again, too, like if you accidentally break a piece, it's not that big of a deal. So I I think that's where you start. You don't you don't go buy a three thousand dollar exclusive, you know, such and such manufacturer from the eighteen hundred. Go and buy something that's cheap and and you know learn.
0: Totally, yeah, that's that's fantastic advice. We've heard a little bit about your reasoning for going into the house, um, but I'll ask you a bit more directly. And we've kind of alluded to it already. Like I said, but. Why do you think it's important to preserve history?
1: Well, the, the amount of ways I can go with that one because I think there's a lot of reasons. I of course there's, you know, if you don't learn from your past, you're, you know, doomed to repeat it sort of thing. And, and there's the, the cliche of that. But I, I think in a weird way, it, it's 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 a way to, to build yourself a little time machine almost, right? And other people can can get into this time machine with you, right? People can step back and realize that these people aren't terribly different than us uh, but in some ways i guess they are i mean you know like that and especially i mean i guess if i'm going to talk directly about st louis and why it's so important here we've lost so many of our neighborhoods we've lost so much of what st louis was at that time and a lot of the time it was replaced with nothing or it was replaced with some brutalist structure in the 80s or a, a park or a field which we've got maybe too much of at this point. But I think here for the people who grow up in these communities, especially here on the north side where I'm at, um, they see these buildings and they become these beacons of just mismanagement and and decay and gloom and doom. People associate this with such a negative part of St. Louis. And I think once you get those kids or or those adults now to come and step through a place like this, they could see oh man, this neighborhood that I've known my entire life. Now I actually see it for what it really was and what it is. I think it's a good way to, to build them back up as well. Um, Like the built environment is such a, a necessary thing for, you know, your sanity. If you live in an ugly place, it doesn't help you, you know, emotionally, like you can't, mentally break that sometimes but when you can start seeing beautiful things come back up the built environment at least the facades of these places once they come back up you, you people start feeling more pride for their neighborhood they start talking about it in a different way they walk and move about the, this environment in a completely different way and i think that's really important i mean like just mentally like the importance of that i think can't be overstated um and so for st louis who has taken so many blows and there's been so much negative press about it i think it's really really important for the for the people here to, to be able to have that pride about their city. And uh, I'm just really trying to build that, that civic pride.
0: So true. And I think you, you touched on a really good point there saying that your built environment actually affects how you feel and your mental state. And um, I think it's so interesting that, you know, we have these beautiful communities and beautiful homes and uh, neighborhoods here in North America. And yet so often people think, oh, I want to go to Europe, I want to go to Paris, I want to go to London and see these old homes and see these cool, these cool things and these cool places. But we've got those things here. But there's, there's such a mentality, I think, that is perhaps a little more uniquely North American, that discards old stuff in favor of new stuff. And, you know, especially when you get to the point where you have maybe a decrepit old building, it does just look old, and it's not nice anymore. And it's not, cool, you know, but when you restore it to the, how it was, you know, seeing that Victorian house is no longer old and, and outdated and old fashioned. It's beautiful and, and amazing, but you have to see it as it was meant to be.
1: I mean, absolutely. Um, I mean, even if they're a little bit decrepit, the materials that these things are built with, nobody could afford to build the way they did back then. I mean, they, it's just much tougher materials. Um, you know, you have real two by fours, so real two inch by four inch beams in here, uh, if not bigger in a lot of the places, you know, um, and you have these really cool technologies that we've kind of forgot about, like things like speaking tubes and, and, you know, little pool bells and, and just kind of different things that, you know, we take for granted kind because of, oh, everybody's got a cell phone now. But I, I don't know, like, there's a, a sense of nostalgia, I think, to it for an, for an era, none of us experienced in our life today, you know, nobody, nobody remembers this era. But I don't know, There, it's just such a, I don't know, like, I, I guess I'm just bored of like the Scandinavian cool look. And I think a lot of people are, and I'm sick of things that are particle board that you have to go rebuy every few years. And that's mm-hmm. just broken. Um, and right now, for whatever reason, antique furniture, at least here in St. Louis, is extremely cheap. So I can go out like uh, the bed I have was 140 dollars. It's solid walnut. It's a uh, Renaissance revival. It's gorgeous. But I couldn't go to IKEA and buy this uh, a bed like this, or or you know even buy a bed at all for 140 bucks. So you can get better made things that are older than you can new.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: The last ever, and it's then you can stop this whole cycle of you know buying and throwing away, the and then buying again and then throwing away. The like we gotta stop doing that anyways if we care about the planet, like a lot of people say they do. Okay, well, you know, stop going to IKEA and buying crap
0: furniture. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. One one of our things that we say at, at My Vintage Lifestyle is sometimes older is just better. And and that's really the case a lot of times, especially with with furniture. And another one of the things we say is reduce, reuse, revintage instead of recycle, because there's just there's so many amazing things out there that are oftentimes better quality, available at a lower price why wouldn't you immerse yourself in the past, immerse yourself in that story as well as get something that's higher quality.
1: Well, even if you do a little bit of work on it too, I think that's really important as well. Cause then you get a little bit of your DNA in it, right? Like you have more pride of that piece. It's not just, Oh, that's that chair I bought from wherever that's the chair I bought from this sale. And I did this to it. It, isn't it pretty? Like you, you build a little bit of pride in yourself in it. and, And I think that's really cool. And I think, a lot of people miss that these days. They're, they don't have any actual connection to anything in their house. It's just things they went out and acquired, you know? Um, but I think once you put a little bit of sweat equity, let's say, into something, then you you have this pride. It's like, oh, I don't want anything to happen to that chair. I spent a lot of time on that chair. I have a lot of love for that chair because I've had my hands all over it.
0: Absolutely. So you mentioned in one of your videos that... Even the kitchen, you guys are going to keep Victorian and I know you're going to do some 1920s appliances. You know, one of the things that I really appreciate about that is that, again, you're living sort of the past. You're experiencing the past as it was. And I think if nobody actually lives history, quote unquote, and experiences maybe how those appliances were used and and what a Victorian kitchen is like to operate in, we, we don't know how it actually worked and how things were, I think, like you mentioned, this is an era that none of us were alive in. And yet, if you read a textbook, you may find out some of the information about how a Victorian kitchen worked, but you're never going to find out really what it was like until you immerse yourself in it. So I think that's really cool. How did you, was that a difficult decision to come to, to, to even do the kitchen, something that's very, you know, important in a lot of modern homes to, to do that in a vintage style?
1: Well, it's not, it wasn't hard for me to come to that decision. My girlfriend, uh, a little bit of pushing and coaxing. Uh, essentially there is a, underneath the kitchen, there was a summer kitchen. So that's going to be our laundry room slash our little modern kitchen. Uh, that room doesn't, there's nothing special about it down there. So I can have the adjustment of having a large freezer and another refrigerator and and things to handle more capacity, let's say. Fair. But, um, after like talking to, uh, people like Shelly over at the magic chef mansion. Uh, I don't know if you saw that that video I did there. Um, she has three or four, uh, you know, original magic chef, you know, 1920s, 1930s stoves. She doesn't have a modern stuff. There's many houses I've been here in St. Louis that don't have them. They work just fine. Um, most of them, yeah, they'll add like a safety valve on it and maybe clean up the enamel. But again, things were built so well back in the day. Um, and, and there really isn't any difference between a modern gas stove and a 1920s one. The only difference really is some of them have, you know, the igniters, so you don't have to reach over and light it, the gas. That's really the only difference I could find. Uh, I've operated a few of them. Uh, refrigeration, the same thing. When GE came out with the monitor tops, the middle class was now able to afford refrigeration. Well, this is the first iteration of that. So. You know, I might have to get around, to, you know, like getting maybe just a pint of ice cream because that's all it can fit in the freezer section. But other than that, most of them still work. Again, 100 year old devices that are still kicking. It's like, well, you know, most refrigerators last like what 10 years, maybe. So I don't think it's actually a huge step. I think the one thing that we'll have to get used to a little bit more than everything is not having counter space because I didn't really build counter space. Um, they'd have what, what at least for my research is called harvest table. So you'd have like a table with the wings in the middle. Um, so essentially that's where, if you want to make coffee, you got to set the appliance up there. If you want to do anything, it's all done on that table. If you bring groceries in, that's where they go to. And then they go into the pantry from there sort of thing. So I'm sure there'll be some slight, uh, learning curve to it all, but I, I don't actually think it's terribly different. Um, only because I'm not doing the real 1880s stuff. Like I don't want to cook with coal. And I don't want to bring ice blocks into the ice box. I think that's just a wee bit too much for me. Um, the same way within like the bathroom, like I'm not using 1890s toilet paper, uh, mostly because in the ads I've seen, they, in the thirties, they were saying splinter-free toilet paper. Like they were advertising as splinter-free I don't want to know what splinter full paper feels like. You know, we're gonna have Wi-Fi and things like that. I just don't want like TVs in here or yeah. anything that takes you out of the idea that you're in this era. Um, yeah. The kitchen's the only very minor exception because again, no blocks of ice and no coal in there.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, I've I've talked to quite a few different vintage enthusiasts and listened to to plenty of others, and uh, we all have our limits. I think where. We really want to engage with the past but then everybody has their different spot where they say, okay yeah, this is where I'm going to compromise and that's that's totally fine because we're still doing something really important and we're still immersing ourselves in the past. you're offering even other people kind of the experience to immerse themselves in the past. you talked about wanting people to come to come and see the house and so I'll ask you what are your long-term goals for the house you know beyond completion?
1: Um, I ideal well completion, who knows if we'll ever quite get there. There's always something to do right? Um, but my goal is, and I think it's just because kind of stems from me being a kid who grew up in an environment that didn't have access to stuff like this, like this is really kind of mind blowing this place to me still. Um, but I want to make sure people have some sort of access. I don't know what that means exactly, but I want people to be able to come here and, and stay the night and not make it overly expensive. But maybe not offer it directly too much to the public. That way, it's not like, oh, it's a cheap place to stay. And Then I have people banging their luggage up against like the wallpaper that cost me for you know things like that. So I want people who are actually interested um, yeah. in these things and respect what I've done here and and want the experience. They want it for the experience, not because it's a place to stay. But I want them to be able to actually stay here for the night um, and use the bathrooms, use the showers, use. All of these little pieces that I've collected and use it as a house. Um, I think. Well, I don't know many many museums that that allow you to touch anything. So mm-hmm. I want this to be a museum. We can. I, I don't know if I'll ever call it a museum, but um, and I'm still trying to work out what that means. Like like how that works in practice. I don't know yet. Um, I definitely think at least two days a week I will probably give tours to the public. Um, I just want them to be like donation only. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to become, I guess, a rich man off this. I just want to enrich other people's lives with it because I didn't have the opportunity when I was young and I would have loved this as a kid. The inner kid within me is always excited to wake up here. Like I'm no no know. I'm always happy being here.
0: Yeah. That's really cool, man. And it's, it's really generous of you as well, but you're right. A lot of these places, especially the ones that are actually finished or redone or whatever, you know, they're private homes and we can't get into them. And if we can get into them, they're museums where stuff is roped off and you can't touch things. So that's a super unique thing to be able to offer the public. It's super cool.
1: Yeah, I think it'll be awesome, man. And I, I mean, the few people that I have had, well, quite a few people at this point, people are really excited about being here, you know, like it's definitely a different experience and not very many people live this way. Um, and so if somebody can come in and live that for a night, I think that's such a, a cool little valuable thing to offer people. Um, and, and I think, you know, with that aspect, I get to bring more people into St. Louis too. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, share my message of this is a really cool city. Don't overlook us, you know? So uh, yeah, I, I think it's just a win-win all around. And I don't know. I think I would be, beside myself if I didn't share this wonderful gift I've been given. So
0: that's awesome. Well, uh, we'll wrap it up with, with one more question. I want to ask you what advice would you give to someone out there who wants to save an old house in their community?
1: That's a lot of advice. Um, definitely cut your teeth on something that's smaller. So if you can find a small Victorian house, it's probably the proper way to start. Um, Definitely, if, if you're young right now and you have time, pick up, you know, a few woodworking tools or pick up whatever it is you want to learn, upholstery, pick up some talent, some skills in some in some various areas so you can, you can accomplish something like this and learn something every day. Every day you go out there, just try to be a better version of yourself and do it incrementally because you're never going to be able to stuff all of this knowledge into, you know, a week. It's just never going to happen. So take it slow and uh, learn as much as you humanly can. Um, if you have a, uh, an uncle, a brother, a grandfather who knows construction, when you go and look at a place, definitely take them along with, with you because um, you wanna definitely make for sure foundations are good and you know, basically the big ticket items, you wanna make for sure that those are at least good or they're acceptable enough for you to fix. Um, you know, Look up prices of what things cost how they're done correctly. And, and definitely when you're getting contractors in to do things, make for sure you watch them while you, they do their work. So they do it correctly because I've had many, many problems with that. Um, and I think the biggest thing is you need to really want this. this these are not easy projects. They're, there's so many complicated little things to them and you need to really want it and know that this isn't going to be a quick year long renovation. A restoration, especially if it's a restoration, um, it's going to take you time, but you have to want it and you have to love it. If you don't, I think, um, like, you know, most couples get broken up, you know, during rest or, you know, renovations of things. You have to look past that. You have to look past the dust, the dirt debris, and realize what you're getting in a few years time and, uh, work hard work every day.
0: It's <laughs> great advice. Yeah. Really great advice. Well, Caleb, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been awesome just getting to know you and hearing your story. And I know there are so many people who are going to learn a lot from this and take away a lot from this conversation. So thank you. And I wish you all the best of luck as you continue to restore your historic home.
1: Well, thank you so much. And thanks for having me. And uh, hey, let me know if you ever want to do it again. I'm uh, I'm always game.